Let's open the Scriptures this morning to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 17 and chapter 22, a few verses from those passages. In the Pew Bible, it's page 203, 203. That's where we find the first passage, Deuteronomy 17. These passages are chosen in connection with the text in John, Gospel of John, the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, where the Pharisees bring to the Lord Jesus a woman caught in the act of adultery, and they want Jesus to pronounce uh, a judgment of stoning upon her. So there's a background to that law and that issue of stoning here in Deuteronomy. That's why we're reading these passages Deuteronomy 17, verse 2, if there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing His covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. And then here comes the matter of the witnesses. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now to chapter 22, beginning at verse 22. There's other capital offenses here, offenses calling for the death penalty. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the city gate and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. From here we go to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John, and read the context leading up to the text in, at the very end of chapter 7. So in the Pew Bible, page 1136, 1136, Gospel of John, chapter 7, we'll begin reading at verse 14. Jesus is, at the, is in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths, and there's been some interaction with the Jewish leaders, and we pick up the story at verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? 
So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? That's a reference to Jesus healing the lame man back in John chapter 5. He did that on the Sabbath. Jesus continues, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many in the, of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than these? Yet then this man has done. Please turn with me in the Bible to John 8. Actually, John 7, verse 53, the very last verse of chapter 7. In the Pew Bible, page 1137. And I invite you to note in the ESV translation the, the note in square brackets right above uh, verse 53. And I'll sp speak to that in the introduction to the sermon. Chapter 7, verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? This, they said, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. 
Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So far, our text. In response to the preaching, we'll sing two songs. Psalm 19, stanzas 3 and 4, together with hymn 11, stanzas 7 and 9. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have before us a text this morning that instantly raises a lot of questions. And that, I think, is why I was requested uh, to preach on it. Lots of questions. There's the questions about the Pharisees, what the Pharisees are up to. There's the question about why Jesus didn't answer them right away, why He stoops down to write on the ground. And there's the question of what did Jesus actually write on the ground? But perhaps the most obvious question relates to the note found in our ESV Bibles. That's also found in the NIV and most modern translations. That note I referred to ahead of verse 53, the earliest manuscripts do not include 7 verse 53 to 8 verse 11. What does that mean? mean for us? Well, you might be aware, to take that question first, you might be aware that behind our English translations of the New Testament are copies of the original Greek, the Greek of the apostles and the other New Testament writers. In fact, there are many hundreds of copies or parts of copies that scholars use and they compare with one another in order to figure out what the original was. We no longer have the original actual letter or gospel written by any of those writers. We just have copies from later centuries. Well, there's a whole field of study devoted to that. And now this note in the Bible suggests that perhaps these particular verses are not part of John's original gospel. That's the idea behind it. The note I want to point this out, the note has a bias built into it by suggesting that the earliest manuscripts are necessarily the most trustworthy. But brothers and sisters, that is not necessarily true. Don't let that notion worry you too much. Age is not equivalent to accuracy necessarily. Age of the manuscript is not the determining factor. Something that's old could have corruptions, same as something that's younger. And something that's younger could be based on more reliable, older manuscripts themselves. So, it's not a simple matter of the oldest wins. Well, what then are we to make of these 12 verses? Lots could be said about whether John, in fact, wrote these words. 
But three things, when I survey all the evidence, three things stand out to me, and I want to pass them on to you. Virtually all scholars on both sides of the issue agree that what is written here actually took place. Nobody thinks this is a fantasy. Nobody thinks this was made up. This actually took place. So that's one point in its favor. Secondly, respected church fathers, men like Ambrose and Jerome and Augustine, they understood this section to be an original part of John's gospel. Also, men like John Calvin accepted it that way. And finally, this passage, when you look at these verses and look at it in the context of John's gospel, it fits very, very well into the context. So, I conclude, brothers and sisters, there's no reason to not regard these verses as original to John's gospel as the work of Christ's Spirit through His servant John. This text, to come now to understand the text, this text is all about judgment. The Pharisees and the scribes, they take a lawbreaker caught in the act, they take that lawbreaker to Jesus, and they, they demand judgment according to the law. But Christ, who came, that was His mission, to obey the law, to fulfill the law, as He says in Matthew 5.17, Christ shows the Pharisees and us how to properly honor God and bless the neighbor by making a right judgment. That's the issue in our text, and that will be our theme this morning as I bring you the Word of the Lord. Christ teaches us to judge with a right judgment. We'll see two things, using God's law to hurt and then using God's law to help. The whole matter of God's law, the law given through Moses and how to judge according to that law, that has been a growing point of dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees here in John's gospel. Maybe you can flip back with me a moment if you've got your Bible handy to John chapter 5. I mentioned earlier that Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath there in John 5. That man had been lame for 38 years, we're told, and the Pharisees were upset. Jesus had told that man to pick up his mat and, and go home. He had done so, and that's what triggered the Pharisees. And later in verse 10 and verse 16, we discovered that they were just generally upset that Jesus was healing on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees, you will remember, they were teachers of the law. The law of Moses, that was their bailiwick. They were experts. They, they believed they were advocates for Moses himself. But time and again, Jesus challenges them about that, challenges that claim. Verse 47 of chapter 5, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I mean, to suggest to the Pharisees that they didn't believe Moses would have been incredulous to them because they were all about Moses. This issue of who truly understands the law of Moses and the law given through Moses is simmering beneath the surface as we come into chapter 7. If you would look at chapter 7, verse 23, 
Jesus says, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. Jesus is insisting, don't make surface judgments. Make a right, a true, a just judgment. And now that is the issue on display here in our text as the Pharisees, they come to Jesus with a woman caught in adultery. They're going to fix Jesus' wagon. They're going to set Him up so that He has to agree with them on an interpretation of the law of Moses. At first, when they bring this lady, it looks like a a slam dunk, doesn't it? It all seems quite simple, cut and dried. This woman has actually been caught in the act of adultery, it says. This isn't just suspicion of adultery. It's not mere circumstantial evidence. The way it's worded in the original Greek in verses 3 and 4 make it very clear that she was caught red-handed in the act. Notice that the woman herself puts up no protest to the charge. She makes no defense, even though she's facing the death penalty. So, these legal experts, they have her dead to rights in her crime. She is as guilty as you can have it, and she knows it. And the law of Moses is as clear as you can have it, isn't it? We read about that in Deuteronomy 22. Very clear about this sin, this crime. Anybody caught in the act of adultery was to be put to death. That's the Lord's will. Deuteronomy 22. It doesn't say how they were put to death, but other passages indicate stoning was the norm. So, that's what the Pharisees are after. It seems very simple, very straightforward. According to the law, this woman, guilty of adultery, should be stoned to death. Now, Rabbi, what do you say? That's the challenge they put to Jesus in verse 5, and in the original Greek, it's very emphatic. You, they say, you therefore, what do you say? These Pharisees, they come rushing at Jesus with the law of God in their hand. They they thrust Him into a corner with no way out. They force Him into an undesirable conclusion. Have you ever had that happen to you? Somebody comes at you with the law, they corner you, or have you done that to somebody? What's really going on here? What are these Pharisees trying to accomplish as they bring this woman forward? Are they after justice? Well, John tells us very pointedly in verse 6, This they said to test Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against Him. So this is not about justice, you see. This is a setup. It's a trap for this rabbi from Nazareth. Do you see how how the Pharisees are using God's law to hurt, not help? If Jesus agrees with their judgment… He risks upsetting the crowds 
because Jesus had preached a lot about mercy and about forgiveness. If he disagrees with their charge, then they can bring up against Jesus himself the, the charge of rebellion against the law of Moses. That's what they, they really want. They want to hang him on the law of Moses, so to speak. Either way, the Pharisees think they're going to win. These brothers and sisters, these were experts in the law of Moses. They were leaders of Israel. These were the men charged with ensuring that God's people were being ruled according to God's law so that they could live according to God's will for their good. That is the purpose, let us recall. That is the purpose of God's commandments given through Moses centuries earlier. Let me quote from Deuteronomy 10. This is Moses. He says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord our God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for, here comes the reason, for your good. The law is for your good, Israel. The law is meant as a benefit for you, for the well-being of you and your children. But here in this passage, when it comes right down to it, the, inter- the Pharisees have no interest in using the law as God intended it, but only in using it as a club to beat their enemies. And right now, enemy number one is Jesus of Nazareth. We're going to get him, and we're going to get him with the law. The intention of the law, brothers and sisters, the intention behind the law, it matters. It matters greatly. The basis of of the law, of total love for God, as well as equal love for the neighbor, that is foundational to obeying all of God's commandments. Obeying rules or commands without that love is neither pleasing to God nor beneficial for the neighbor. We read that too in Romans 13. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love, why? Because love does no wrong to its neighbor. So it is not enough for us to take the bare letter of the law and, and do what it says without understanding the intention beneath it and the love that we're supposed to have for God and neighbor. We always have to ask of any commandment, what is God's motive behind this particular law? What does He want us to accomplish by obeying this command? If we forget the intention or lose sight of the purpose, then God's law will soon become a collection of meaningless rules. It will become a prison house that only serves to restrict and never serves to bless. That's how you get Pharisees who were actually mad at Jesus for healing a lame man on the Sabbath day. I mean, can you imagine that, that their reaction was that way? They were ticked off. 
that Jesus had the audacity to heal a man on the Sabbath day. Instead of being incredibly grateful for the miracle of healing, they're ticked off that he so-called violated the Sabbath day. But when you understand the purpose of the law, that it is to honor God and it is to do good to your neighbor, then when, for example, the Nazis show up at your door and ask you to your face if you are harboring Jews in your house, which you're doing, then you can lie to their face and you can deceive them, as some of our own forebears have done. And that would be the right thing to do, wouldn't it? That would please God, wouldn't it? To have told the truth on that particular occasion would have been to cause your neighbor to suffer, and that is not right in God's eyes. That's also why we have examples in Scripture like the Egyptian midwives. When Pharaoh confronted them, they were under command to throw the baby boys of the Israelites into the Nile River. Pharaoh confronts them about helping the Hebrew women give birth and not drowning those boys. And Scripture says that the Lord blessed them for their lie. They said the women were too vigorous and they gave birth before they got there. Not true. They lied and the Lord blessed them. They understood the purpose of God's law, the love for God and neighbor that has to shine through. Do you and I see and use God's law that way? Are we asking, what's the intention of this law? And how can I best obey this law so that it first of all honors the Lord and second, that my neighbor is helped? Now, these Pharisees were using God's law as a weapon. They were aiming the weapon against Jesus, but they didn't care who got hurt in the process. They didn't care about this woman, for example. She was just a pawn to them. Notice how they, they take this lady not to the ruling Jewish council. That was the proper court for a, a crime like this. They take and Jesus himself, they would later take to that court. But no, they take her to Jesus. He's not an appointed judge. And they don't take her to Jesus in, in a private moment, away from the crowds, to ask his opinion about a delicate case, seeking some wisdom. No, no, they take her to Jesus in front of the most public space, the temple, and at the most public time during the Feast of Booths, when large crowds of people are milling about Jerusalem, and many are in fact listening to the teaching of Jesus. Today, it'd be the equivalent, or something like, parading this woman in front of the TV cameras at the home opener of the Blue Jays. Everybody's watching. It would be a deliberate attempt to publicize her embarrassing and shameful scandal, and they want Jesus to be just as embarrassed and scandalized, or worse. The Pharisees have no concept of justice. They're, they're not thinking about fairness or equity. We know that also because of what is missing from this scene. God's law was very clear on how adultery was to be handled. We read that in 
Deuteronomy 22, it says there, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Both shall die. Where is the man in our text? It's very clear that the woman was caught in the act of adultery. And it always takes two to tango, right? Two were caught red-handed. One is brought to Jesus in public. That's the opposite of what should have happened. In fact, the law consistently marks out the man as the aggressor in these sexual sins. And at times, only the man was to die if there was no way for the woman to cry out for help, Deuteronomy 22, 25. So, if anybody should be on trial by himself, it should be the man, first of all, but he's nowhere to be found. He's not even mentioned by the Pharisees at all. Two were caught in the act, but only one is brought to Jesus for judgment, the helpless woman. How humiliating, how unfair, and what a perversion of God's good law. That's what judging with a wrong judgment brings about. It brings about a dishonoring of the the giver of the law, and it brings hurt to the neighbor. But thanks be to God, our Savior knows how to right our wrongs and how to use God's law to help and to bless. For Jesus responds in a way that no one expected. Verse 6, He bent down and wrote with His finger on the ground. That's kind of curious, wouldn't you say? What did Jesus write, we wonder? Through the centuries, there have been lots of guesses. Some say that Jesus was writing the names of the Pharisees, actually, and the charge that would come against them. Some say He was quoting part of the law of Moses about malicious witnesses, or even quoting a passage from Jeremiah, which references a kind of a a writing in the sand. The truth is, the Holy Spirit has not revealed to us what He wrote, so it cannot be important to know. It would be better to take note of what Jesus did not do. He did not answer the Pharisees, at least not at first. They come to Him with what is an open and shut case in their mind, and they they demand His response, they demand His judgment, but Jesus doesn't answer. In fact, Jesus becomes completely silent. That's really strange. Very out of the ordinary for a teacher, for Jesus was there in the temple busy teaching. He had been teaching every day of this feast, and that was his normal practice. But now, faced with this quandary put to him by the Pharisees, Jesus stopped speaking altogether. Can you imagine that the hush that would have fallen over that crowd, which was already eagerly hanging on every word Jesus spoke? He's in the middle, 
sitting down. Now he's bent in that sitting position, saying nothing, writing on the ground. Everybody would be looking. What's he doing? What's he writing? What will happen to this woman? There's a whole lot on the line here. This woman could be stoned to death in a matter of minutes. So in that silence, and a few Pharisees peppering him with questions, in that general silence, you could cut the tension with a knife. All the tension is drawn to his finger writing in the sand. Why? Well, those two actions together, they invite reflection from those watching, don't they? When the teacher, who's already the focal point, when he becomes silent and starts to do something very odd, like writing in the sand, people have to pause, they have to think, they have to interpret what he's doing. What is is the rabbi doing? What's he up to? And... What do you think those Pharisees thought about they, when they see Jesus writing with His finger? What do you think they were thinking of? We need to, to live in the text, right? This is a message for those Pharisees and those Jews around Him. What would they be thinking of? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that they were thinking of the one place in the Old Testament where the word finger and the verb to write come together, and that is in Exodus 31, where it says that Moses took down with him from Mount Sinai the the two tablets of the testimony written with the finger of God. So by this act of writing with his finger, Jesus is inviting the Pharisees and everyone else to think carefully about what God wrote with his finger on those two tablets of stone so long ago. Remember, this is an issue about the law. And so by that silent writing, there's a question being put to the Pharisees. Pharisees, does your approach line up with what God wrote in his law so long ago? Does your purpose match God's purpose? It's Jesus' way of turning the challenge back on to the Pharisees, just as David did in Psalm 58, which we sang. Do you indeed, you men so mighty, you powerful rulers, do you decree injustice what is right? Are all your verdicts truth and light, we sang? Do you judge mankind uprightly? And when Jesus does break his silence. That is the the force behind his words of verse 7. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, that saying, like many other sayings of the Bible, have been lifted out of their context, and they have become, uh, this saying and others like uh, like it, have become popular sayings in general culture. You can even hear unbelievers say it. It pops up in movies sometimes. It's taken on a life of its own. It becomes a way for people to silence others who bring up accusations, who talk about sin. 
who talk about the need for repentance, they say things like, look, stop, sto- uh, stop throwing stones. If you're without sin, you throw the first stone, and that usually stops people from saying anything more because they quickly realize they're without sin, or they, they are not without sin. What people mean by that in general culture is that because you are a sinner and other persons are sinners, because you do wrong, everybody does wrong, everybody has to let each other be, just be and let be. So is that what Jesus is teaching here? Be and let be. Don't throw stones at anybody. Never bring accusations of wrongdoing. Well we know that that can't be the case. Why? Because Jesus, in another passage, specifically commands us, sinful people, to address fellow sinners about their sins of which they are not repenting. Matthew 18. He says, you sinners, you repentant sinners, you must speak out of love to non-repentant sinners You need to go to your brother or sister in sincerity and in humbleness of heart, and you need to alert them to their wrongs. You need to urge them to repent. You need to do what you can do to bring them back to the Lord. Matthew 18. So, and Jesus never contradicts Himself. What Jesus says here cannot mean to shut down all forms of accusation or admonition but rather it is meant to shut down all forms of unjust accusation or admonition. We must judge others with a right judgment. What Jesus is saying to the Pharisees in verse 7 is, let him who is without sin in this matter. That's the implication. Let him who has no sin in this matter among you be the first to throw a stone. There's an implied reference there to Deuteronomy 17, which we read, where God specifies that only on the evidence of two or three witnesses may a person be uh, condemned to die, and that it must be those witnesses themselves that take up the first stones and throw it at the guilty party. So if you had witnessed a capital crime, whether it was rape or whether it was murder, and you were a witness at the trial, you were to throw the first stone. Quite something, right? Why would God ask that of the witnesses? Well, the witnesses had to be super serious. They had to be completely reliable. And to make sure that that was the case, they had to have skin in the game, so to speak. To put a person to death for a crime was no small matter, so to prove their integrity, these witnesses, they had to be willing to throw the first stone. I mean, that's, that takes quite something. I'm going to throw this stone at you as the first of many, which will lead to your death. I need to be really sure you're guilty. I need to be certain that all fairness and justice has been followed and, and given in the trial. 
To throw the first stone would, would mean that you would be able to stand before the Almighty God and say, Lord, I understand. This is your command. I understand you want us to use stoning as a method to purge evil from Israel, and I, as your servant, I'm willing to do that because I've seen the evil. You could only do that if your own conscience was right before the Lord that you had been above board and the process had been above board all the way along. You could only cast the first stone if you were totally committed to the Lord's purpose of stamping out evil and promoting true love of God and neighbor. After Jesus spoke, he once more fell silent and he began writing with his finger on the ground. And the Pharisees are looking and they're thinking and the penny suddenly drops. It begins to sink in what he's communicating. One by one they begin to leave, these Pharisees, starting with the oldest, it says. Starting with the oldest, but little wisdom there was among the Pharisees. It lay with the older ones. Do you see how Jesus uses the law to help these men see the error of their own ways? They had stormed into Jesus' teaching circle with callous regard for justice, with no thought for the life of one of God's people, with hatred for Jesus Himself. But minutes later, they had to leave that circle shattered they had come in arrogance. They had to leave in humility. They came without any guilt feeling at all to work evil, but they left with a sense of their own shame. Jesus had worked that in them. Wonderful Savior, isn't He? The question is, what will these Pharisees do with their shame? They've been convicted now by the law of their sin. What will they do with it? You know, it's the same question that remains for the woman. Unlike the Pharisees and their treatment of her, Jesus treats the woman carefully with respect. When all her accusers have left, He stands up and addresses her directly. The first time she's even spoken to by anybody in the story directly. And He, he says, woman, and that was a respectful address. Elsewhere, He uses it of His mother in the Gospels. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? That's another way of Jesus saying, has no one thrown that first stone? And when she replies, no one, Lord, and Jesus then says, neither do I condemn you, we should be careful to understand that well and not get that wrong. This is not Jesus saying to this woman, as He had to others on different occasions, He's not saying, your sins are forgiven. He certainly could have said that. He had the authority to do so. No, it's not forgiveness that He's speaking about, but it's fair treatment according to the law of God. Remember what God's law required in such a circumstance. No one was to be condemned to death except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus was not an eyewitness. 
all the other witnesses had left. So Jesus is simply saying, if the eyewitnesses did not see fit to throw the first stone, then neither can I. And so she is free to go. And notice that when Jesus sends her away, He does not say, as He does to others whose sins have been forgiven, He does not say, go in peace. No, the condition of her heart is at this point an open question. It's a matter for her to ponder very carefully, and Jesus uses the law to lead her into the direction of repentance and forgiveness when, when Jesus adds, go and from now on sin no more. Jesus knew she was guilty. She had been acquitted of the charge, but not declared innocent of the sin. There's a distinction there. You can be let off on a technicality, but still be guilty. There were no witnesses to condemn her to death, but her underlying sin is real, and she must give up her underlying sin. Will she? That's the question that's unanswered by the end of the text. Will she give up her sin? Will she repent of her sin? Will we repent of our sin? That's the question for us to take home. Jesus is on His way to lay down His life to pay the penalty for sinners like this woman, sinners like those Pharisees. There's hope for them too, you know. We don't write off the Pharisees. And sinners like you and me. The law of God, it is meant, its purpose, one of its purposes is to lead sinners to see their sin for what it is, how it is so offensive to the Lord, to then hate their sin, to turn from their sin and eagerly desire forgiveness of those sins. Brothers and sisters, does that describe you? Do you hate your sin? Do you sorrow over your wrongs? Do you desire forgiveness from God? There absolutely is forgiveness from the Lord. Complete and total forgiveness found in the body and blood of Jesus as we hope to have impressed upon us again next Sunday in the Lord's Supper. But to be here and eat of that bread and be here and in, in drink of that blood, you and I, we have to be here in repentance. We cannot let sin live in our life. We have to be repenting of it. We have to be killing it daily. So that means whether you can relate to the Pharisees' sin of legalism or to the woman's sin of lustful pleasure-seeking, or some other sinful way of life. You can think of the sin. You can pick the sinful way of life. Whatever. Take the shame of your sin in true sorrow of your heart. Take it to the cross of Jesus and hang your sin on Him. That's what we have to do. 
that's the only place that we can take our sins to die and they will no longer harm us, then we will be free. And then we may go, as Jesus says, and sin no more. Then we may go in peace, in the strength of Christ's Spirit, rejecting future temptation to sin and pursuing a life of thankful obedience to that good and perfect law of God. The law of God which was given for our good, which was given to be a help to us, and which now shows us the way to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Amen.